Uh, before I introduce our crack team of analysts, uh, I just have time to run through the stories making the front pages of today's newspapers. Uh, the Sunday Times leads with Higgins should get unopposed second term. That's that story I mentioned there. It's a BNA survey for the Sunday Times showing that about two thirds uh, of people think that Michael D. Higgins should run unopposed um, in the next uh, presidential election. Uh, RTE presenter Miriam O'Callaghan is the only other person who's registered a significant level of support. They also have a story on the front page there about these twins from County Meath, Ryan and Scott Fitzsimons. They're 25. They earned a million euro last year from videoing and videoing themselves playing Minecraft and putting the videos up on YouTube. What a time to be alive. Uh, the Sunday Independent, retire when you want revolution. Option to work longer and boost pension funds. Employers would have to justify forced retirement. Uh, comments uh, from Leo Vragker and others within his department about uh, potential moves there. Something else we'll talk about. There's also um, an excerpt from an interview that's carried inside the paper. Uh, Neve Horan has sat down with Alan Kelly. People will remember back in January, the two of them sat down as well when Alan Kelly gave his famous remarks that a power was a drug and a drug that suited him. Uh, the Sunday Business Post leads with Big Brother powers to fight tax evasion by the self-employed. Uh, revenue are going to kind of monitor the spending patterns of the self-employed, uh, compare those with other self-employed people who they know are tax compliant to try and find people who are dodging. They also have a photo on the front of Eamon Dunphy. Uh, he's given an extensive interview to the newspaper. I uh, brought up a couple of things that we might discuss as well in the next few minutes. The Irish Daily Mail, Michael D. Why councils must build houses. Uh, Michael D. Higgins speaks to Sean Dunn in the Irish Daily Mail doing what he is wont to do what some in government would prefer he did a little less of uh, speaking about government policy what they should be doing uh, The Sunday World he hasn't gone away and uh, Nicola Talent has a story there about uh, Jerry Hutch the monk who apparently uh, came back to Dublin over Christmas to collect a vital financial lifeline in his bid to stay ahead of cartel hit squads uh, he also had protection from uh, former IRA heavyweights with him um, I mentioned our crack team of analysts who are joining me in joining me in studio they are Terry Prone chairperson of the communications clinic Mark Hennessy the news editor with the Irish Times and Lisa Hand journalist and broadcaster you're all very welcome thank you happy new year to you all thank you what did you do this sounds like a little um Prayer service, doesn't it? Yeah, we get that pray for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Did you do anything last night, Terry, to ring in the new year? Yes, I did what I do best and like best. I went to bed with bags of chocolate biscuits, <laughs> bottle of diet coke, and five new books in the bed. Eating in the bed. Oh, Controversial. yeah. No, no, the only issue oh. is crumbs from yeah. biscuits. But Do you have one of those little handheld hoovers then? <laughs> no, no I we, we won't get into that, I don't. Your bedroom habits. Uh, Lisa, what did you do to mark well, the new year? it's your fault, of course, that I didn't go out because I couldn't trust myself to go and hit the hostelries in case I was led astray and would be in here in a, in a complete heap this morning. So if you drank at home, it doesn't count. Then, <laughs> well, only very, only a small, only a very small couple of small sherries and a Bond movie and that was about the eyes of it. I was very, very well behaved. Mark, please tell me you did something a bit more exciting than the no, others. I'm, I'm afraid we are <laughs> deadly dull, all three of us. Uh, no, uh, out with dinner uh, with friends and I was home before 11. Home before 11. I know. How I about know. yourself, Kieran? What Shocking. did you do? I actually watched The Crown on Netflix and then at about a quarter to 12, myself and my wife looked at each other and said, oh, what's the point in waiting up? And we just went to bed. <laughs> Isn't that sad? <laughs> so oh, nobody brought in the oh, studio. Like, you know, we've been away for Christmas and, you know, the kids are in other people's houses and finally we were back in our own house and we just thought, oh my God, this is just... <laughs> 
brilliant and then the fireworks woke us up but anyway look <laughs> enough given out uh, look we mentioned some of the stories there uh, in the papers I want to start with uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent uh, this retirement age story uh, people essentially it's a way of because averting the, the pensions time bomb uh, it's only fair is it Terry that people shouldn't be forced to retire encouraged to retire at 65? I think this is actually a major issue of fairness because in the private sector you can continue working as long as you're competent and so you have hospital consultants you have business people all continuing to work into their mid or late 60s or further on. You simply can't do that in the public sector and what you have is some outrageous injustices like the fact that Gardaí have to retire at 60. Never mind that they're experienced, never mind that they're fit, never mind that they're able for the job or, as most of them do, want to continue the job, you're out of it. And some But there of is this, no story that there'll be an exce- exception, exemptions for Gardaí, that they still will have a, a possibly an early retirement age That's fine. For, for I'm all for options. But what this is, is not an option at the moment. And it goes back to the... Two things were created. Um, One was income tax, which was created during the Napoleonic Wars by William Pitt. And he promised at the time that it would be only for this war and would cease directly afterwards. And good luck with that. And the other thing was um, an old age pension, as it was then offensively called. And when this was developed, I believe, by Bismarck, What he did was very clever. He said retirement age is going to be 65 because he knew the bulk of his people were dead at 65 (laughs) at the time. Now the bulk of people are alive and kicking at 65 and we haven't examined it. I believe that it's way overdue that we should examine it and uh, extend it if people want to continue to work. For many people, work is... It's, it's not about money. It's an expression of who they are. Their whole identity is tied up in their work. And to have that removed from them like a brutal amputation is something that the state should not be able to do. Uh, Mark, mm. ter- does Terry have a point there, particularly, say, around Gardaí? And we probably all know Gardaí who would have retired, say, at 60 and, and younger as well in some cases. Mm. And the force loses, I suppose, it loses their lifetime of learning. And when you're talking about kind of cultural problems in the Gardaí that did dominate a lot of headlines during 2016 that surely is part of it that they're not I suppose they're this <laughs> seems a bit clear but they're, they're on the golf course they're not kind of in Temple Moor passing on what they've learned Well yes and, and judging by the number of them who go on to take second jobs uh, or later jobs they're obviously perfectly capable of doing a week's work so clearly that's going to have to change and in many cases you see guards retiring uh, not at 60 but well before it because if they go into Temple Moor as they did once upon a time at 18 or 19 they can go in their very late 40s uh, or early 50s depending on, on uh, their uh, joining date so that's clearly going to uh, have to change um, I mean the, the headline on the story is interesting quotes retire when you want close quote now you could equally turn that around and say work because you must because that's going to be the reality uh, for many people. Um, Defined benefit uh, pensions are falling like nine pins. Uh, Defined contributions are going to be less generous. Many people don't have pensions at all. We have the whole argument about the public sector and the value of their pensions. Obviously, that's going to be an issue that public sector unions and workers are going to resist, uh, understandably, uh, when efforts are made to uh, to bring that into the calculations. But into the calculations there, it is going to have to come um, because a lot of people in the private sector have 
no future as of now uh, post 65 because they will be looking at a situation where by 2050 I think we'll have almost the same number of people paying into um, the, the pension system as who are drawing out of it and that's not going to be uh, credible uh, in any shape or form and what we should have had for a long period of time is that the, the retirement age should have been moving out a month or two months every year and get people gradually used to the idea that uh, changes are coming rather than coming to a point um, where uh, there are going to have to be very dramatic changes where people I think it's 66 at the moment it's planned to go to 68 by 2020 something I can't remember the date Uh, it's going to have to go far beyond that and it's as well that we all start getting used to the idea in bite-sized chunks because it's coming whether we like it or whether we don't. Uh, Lisa, would there not be some people out there, though, I suppose, that, you know, they've maybe spent a certain amount of time in the workforce. They would have expected that they're going to retire at 65 and uh, the pensions time bomb, you know, they feel, look, this isn't their fault. This is their plan to retire at 65 and thoughts of kind of going beyond it, you know, it's going to frighten them. Well, I think that a lot of people will be looking into their depleted pension pots and, you know, with, and just accepting the fact that, the you know, their treasure trove has been plundered and they're just going to have to bite the bullet and work on. Um, I think most people would accept now that 65 is the new 55 and a lot of people reach 65 and see no reason in the world why they should retire. They're in good health. And uh, quite often as well, given the recession we've had, a lot of 65-year-olds with families may still have grown-up children living at home because they're unable to move out. And maybe the extra income is, you know, is actually required to keep the show on the road. So I think um, that... I, yeah, I think that Mark is right that everybody just has to brace themselves for this. It's coming whether, whether we like it or not. Do they not become bed blockers then for younger people who want jobs? I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that experience, there's an experience drain as much as anything else out of so many professions. I even see it in journalism all the time. Now, for different reasons, but you have a situation where you have a company or even an organisation and people don't have that hinterland, hinterland of experience behind them that they can apply to a situation. Um, you see it very much as we've talked about in the guards. I mean, with the guards you have a situation where you may have somebody retire, do, do their years and retire and then living on a pension longer than they were actually in employment in the guards, which is, you know, which is an unsustainable situation. Yeah, look, that story is on, on the front page of uh, of the Sunday Independent. I want to move on to another story that's in the Sunday Independent. Uh, and <coughs> on page eight, uh, they have some photos and an account of what life is like inside Apollo House. Uh, Mark, this is obviously just around the corner from uh, your normal yes, place of work. Yeah. Um, you, you've probably passed by it most days, uh, been following it very closely. <coughs> you know, when we talk about the legacy of Apollo House, like th- there was some kind of initial criticism. Oh, look, they won't change anything. But it's that kind of missing the point this was really was it about kind of shining a light on something as opposed to affecting real change on its own well I, I can't obviously talk as to what the ambitions of the people involved were um It's an interesting uh, example of how uh, a group can take command of the public agenda to a degree. And I think, in fairness to them, they have. 
and I think they have driven the issue of, of homelessness into the uh, sitting rooms of Ireland, perhaps in ways that uh, weren't uh, achieved by others, despite the fact that there have been years of stories um, about uh, homelessness. I, I think this did manage to actually take it to uh, a different level. Now, in some cases, or in some ways, you'd probably have to wonder as to what the conclusion of this is going to be. If you're going to start a campaign, you need to know how you're going to finish it. Uh, they're certainly giving an indication that they want to be on the pitch as a, a, a permanent organisation in some form campaigning on the issue of homelessness. Now we see in the Sunday Times, I think, where they're refusing to uh, sign up for the standards and public office uh, regulations. And frankly, they don't have a choice. Uh, this is a legal requirement for groups that put themselves on the political pitch and they have put themselves on the political pitch. So there is 165,000 in donations and they should be uh, uh, listed in the way that they would expect everybody else uh, to list them. Um, the uh, whether this will actually take off and we saw one attempt at a copycat start and end fairly quickly in Finglas and there's, uh, there was a talk of one in Sligo that doesn't seem to have really materialised uh, quite whether there is a, a longer term uh, future for all of this is a difficult question but they have brought a light to it and I think Lisa was making the point earlier in terms of an international focus I mean we had our video that we had uh, done by End of a Doubt uh, that ended up uh, being taken by the New York Times so that kind of brings a, a public attention onto the issue of homelessness that perhaps uh, governments in any country wouldn't be too keen to have publicised elsewhere Yeah Lisa despite I suppose uh, figures coming out every month worsening homeless figures there was an argument that we were kind of becoming a bit inured really to the homeless problem. We shouldn't be and it was something that we knew was a, a crisis. It had to be addressed but I guess like anything you just get you, people were kind of getting a little used to it and has this kind of jolted people maybe out of that comfort? I'm not the entirely point? sure people were getting inured or used to this because I think everybody has a fear of the roof being taken off from, from over their head. Anybody with a mortgage anybody under financial pressure it's the it's the thing that everybody fears more than anything else is finding themselves without a home and there was many years in recent times that people were probably one bad paycheck away from facing you know phone calls from the bank and so on and you can't walk down any city street or any main street in any town in Ireland without seeing somebody sitting in a doorway so it's there under your under your nose I think there's a feeling of helplessness among people because they, they don't know what to do and I think they took comfort from the fact that a group of people did get together and put together something mm. that put it into the public profile and I know from uh, re- watching governments successive governments for years that the one thing that will spur an Irish government into action is if they feel they're being embarrassed on a world stage or an international stage they don't like the reputation of being you know a country with you know all positivity around it they don't like that when dragged through the mud so I think the fact that this went global I think may concentrate minds to a greater degree. Terry, they describe themselves as kind of not as a charity but as a political campaign. So if you were advising them on it as 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 running a political campaign, you know, on Mark's point, you shouldn't start a campaign if you're not sure how to end it. Where do they go from here? I think January 11th is the is the date when the, the court order kicks in that you know they must vacate the premises. What do they do to stop this kind of withering out? Um, if I were advising them, I would be concentrating their minds on the fact that the public mind loves things for about three weeks Mm -hmm. and then something else has to be done to make that thing refreshed. It's Somerset Mom's thing of 
um, that you have to make old things new and new things familiar. Once something is uh, an old thing, like the Apollo House story, you have to find constant ways to make it engaging all over again. I can't see that happening because I think that when you have something led by celebrities who have their own uh, careers, top of their agenda, it tends to fizzle. I don't know whether this will fizzle, but it does point to something that we all need to look at, which is that decisions that are made and that are very popular at the time, but that are made in a short term kind of way, have a way of coming back and biting us in the ass. The classic decision that was made, say, 25 years ago was, we're not going to build any more council houses. This is stigmatising people. And we'll make all the available council houses uh, open to be bought by a sort of a gentrification that ignored the ongoing realities of city living in a mixed society. And I think we need to be careful about equating great publicity with great long-term legacy. The the celebrities, I suppose, like as you said, look, they have their own own agendas, but they have their own careers to worry about. But you do need them, do you, to focus attention at the start? Like if they weren't there... Mm-hmm. You know, would the would the videos have been down, have no. been shared in the New York Times? No, they wouldn't. No. And and you know, it was an honourable effort. So yes. no criticism uh, of it. Uh, whether there's a long term influence, is, uh, as Terry says, is is something that's open to, to question. Because you had the pre Christmas Apollo House story, and then bear in mind that for much of the the public has gone into hibernation for the last eight or nine days. So we now have the post Christmas. Apollo's house story to figure out. Now, I don't quite know how they're going to do that and let's see what what they do over coming days. Um, But they do have to re-engage with the public because their public has gone to sleep and has been drinking mulled wine for the last week in many cases. Um, So, uh, you know, there will be a need for perhaps uh, a return of celebrity uh, maybe to to re-engage opinion down the road. Is it a long-term solution to housing? Clearly it's not. I don't believe the people themselves were arguing that it was. So uh, it has taken people uh, off uh, the street and given them uh, a dry bed for, for three or four weeks. That in itself is a good thing, whether there's more to it uh, to well, come it from might, that. I suppose, in, you know, refocus the conversation in a different direction because, one, you know, by taking over such a, a premises, high-profile premises in the city centre, it could broaden out the argument, you know, to say, well, let's look at all the available housing that, you know, vacant or derelict housing that there is in cities or in towns and can, rather than start from scratch from social housing, can these be converted? So maybe it might take the conversation a different direction because it has been very much focused on building social housing, but that's logistically and financially a massive, you know, a massive undertaking. Now with me in studio, if you're just joining us, is Terry Prone, the chairperson of the Communications Clinic, Mark Hennessy, news editor with the Irish Times, and Lise Hand, journalist and broadcaster. Uh, Lise, Michael D. Higgins should get unopposed second term, according to the front page of the Sunday Times. Is this because people think he's so popular or because people just don't want to deal with the presidential election? I think it's probably <laughs> a bit of both, to be honest with you. I mean, I must confess that as a 
political journalist who covered the last presidential election. It was the most fun I've ever had uh, as a political writer. Well, why, was, what made it so much fun? Well, I mean, there was just such so many bonkers candidates for a start <laughs> and then just things kept happening. I mean, we had Dana, we had, you know, we had Sean Gallagher and we had, you know, Martin McGuinness. I mean, it was just so much fun to cover. It really was. It was brilliant. So, personally, I would be massively in favour of a contested one. But also, I think it just gives people a chance to... People like a choice. I mean, we were discussing earlier on uh, whether or not an incumbent president has ever faced a presidential election before. And we weren't entirely sure. Mark thinks that maybe Eamon de Valera was actually faced a contest, but certainly in recent times not. So, you know, I think there's a... um, I think there, you know, once the kind of it starts ratcheting up a little towards the end of his first term, I think then people will maybe be more interested. I think, you know, it's only a year. Let's remember, we're only less than a year out of the last general election, which was so boring that I think people need a little break before there's another contest again. But yeah, he is much loved. Uh, He had a little maybe slipped off his leash and went, went rogue over the Fidel Castro uh, the Fidel, Fidel Castro's death, but you know, generally, people I think are chi- his point of view on many things chime with people's points of view. Uh, Mark, the, the the debate, and I remember the debate say when it was uh, Mary McAleese as well uh, that will start is whether it's look he might be popular, but it's unhealthy for democracy not to have some sort of contest. Is there merit in that argument? Uh, or does there, it matter when it's... Well, there is, but I mean, I think the, 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 the fact that he's done this interview and the fact that he's done such a succession of interviews in, in recent times is clear evidence that Michael D is on manoeuvres and <laughs> Michael D wants a second term. That's the most important, uh, I think, to, 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 to understand, first of all. Um, and he would be a very difficult target for any party to uh, who wants to take him out at this stage because of the fact that he is popular. Now... What would be the motivation of parties um, to to do so? Uh, you've got Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. All the major parties are going to be worried about the next general election. They can't time it. They can't budget for it. They can't raise money in a coordinated, structured fashion. Do they want to have this issue? There's a lot of reasons why people could come around and say, let's just get this problem off the desk. And whether we like Michael D or whether we don't like Michael D is neither here nor there, but we can agree amongst ourselves that we won't spend cash on it. Uh, having said that, you see what's happening with um, uh, the way in which campaigns start to get run, uh, uh, oxygen from below. And could you get uh, a candidate coming out of left field, getting the nominations of councillors, getting the, the, uh, the 20 TDs uh, required in the doll, perhaps? But somebody Actually, having flashbacks now to David Norris, yeah, all, the, the all of that. But yeah, is, is yeah. that, is that, mo- is that more possible now? And that that would be definitely a definite runner if you had a, a, a person in the park who would be seen as being an establishment centre centre right figure. When that person is left as Michael D is, it makes him more difficult to tackle further left. So I, as of now, you would have thought that he's got a reasonable chance. Uh, but it, it comes down to timing. And it, if if this happens, or if a general election has happened uh, before then, that will change the dynamic. And there would be perhaps a far greater enthusiasm on the part of the major parties at that point to challenge him. 
This well, discussion well, is way too high end um, and also Lise is completely wrong when she says that people <laughs> want choice. People basically uh, don't give a sugar about the Oris. It's it's regarded as a fairly titular um, uh, role. And once we have somebody there that we think is reasonably okay, our general attitude is one of total inertia. Let him stay there, let's not. And also... Uh, Lise is prejudiced because of her own vested interests. Um, as a political True. correspondent, she, as she said, she loved the excitement of it. I would suggest that while general elections can be problematic but necessary, uh, presidential elections bring down the tone of the nation for quite some considerable time because nothing provokes horridness, nastiness, viciousness and spectacular leaking like a presidential election. There's a couple of texts in here saying I hope there is a presidential election and a fair one at that this time. They're Mike, sucking up to Lee's. Michael <laughs> D is not as popular as the media the thinks money. after Trump from Brexit. I think the media will get this wrong as well if they think Michael D is a shoe-in, says well, Sean. No one's saying no, that. Shoe, Someone else says liberal journalists love bombing Higgins New Year, same old agenda. I don't think we're anyone's love bombing, love bombing Michael, Higgins, Michael D. Higgins either. Uh, do not agree that Higgins should get a clear run. He was elected by default last time and I recall him saying he did not inta- intend standing a second time. You were, you covered the election, Lise. He did say that. He kind of oh, was yes. going to be a one-term president. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, absolutely. But um, I think once he... But power is a drug. Power is a, once, power is a drug. Said. And once he got into the Aris and, you know, got, got, you know, got his feet them. under the table and, you know, he he really took the, the job like the proverbial duck, you know, to water. And... Um, He's yeah. I think Mark is completely right. He is on manoeuvres and he is definitely setting himself up for a second run. But I know Terry thinks that I'm biased and that uh, people don't give a sugar about the Irish. I think they do. I think they really they, they don't maybe don't think about it very much. But at the same time, they like to think that the person in there is you know the best of the bunch. And hmm. I think they and feel that there if he is. And also. <laughs> What is with this with stuff about uh, that Michael D said he was only going to be a one-term president? I would put it to you that hundreds of thousands of people around this country on this day are making resolutions that they're going to go to the gym, they're going to stay off the booze, they're going to um, uh, go on a diet and it's not going to last three weeks. So let Michael D change his mind if he wants to change his well, mind. Well, I mean, he's not the first politician to you know have a rethink or do a U-turn. Yeah or whatever and I don't think anybody would hold that against him um, at all but I think that at the, I, mean, I do remember one press conference where he, a youthful colleague of mine you know raised tentatively the question of his age and he you know rather wonderfully just turned around and you know used the old thing well you know I won't hold your youth and experience against you you know mm-hmm. asking that question so I mean he's up for the scrap there's no doubt about it but I hope he gets a scrap Mark, you mentioned the uh, being on manoeuvres and his interviews as well at the Irish Daily Mail today where he talks about a number of issues. Um, before we talk about the specific issues that he mentions, particularly social housing and councils building houses, uh, is this kind of Michael D. Higgins again you know, let, going a little off, off leash? Well, yes, but I mean, that's been a, 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 ten, a, a trait of his uh, presidency from the very off. I remember um, meeting with him in Manchester or Liverpool during the Hapan Levar uh, case, 
and uh, we, he did an interview with us and I mean I know that there were people in government buildings who were throwing tables off walls uh, shortly afterwards according to accounts um, so he has annoyed uh, people in government on more than a few occasions not a bad thing perhaps um, he has managed to get away with it because he has generally been clever enough to be on the right side of history in terms of the political tenor of the debate. Uh, the danger is of course, and he maybe had a slight touch of, of, of what it, it happens when it goes the other way mm-hmm. with his comments about Castro um, because I don't think he was perhaps necessarily in tune in quite the same way um, but he, he clearly uh, has made a habit of that. And, you I can mean, get away with a lot when you're likeable. Yeah. But, you know, in all of walks of life. That's one of life's yeah. great truths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and he he has built up that image um, uh, with people uh, in the same way that perhaps Mary Robinson did uh, coming in uh, as she did in 1990 with a a, a reputation in the Shannon for being reserved and cold and all the rest of it and yet the the picture that people saw of her during her presidency was warm and engaged and active and everything else and people took her uh, to their hearts in in their own way. So that does uh, um, uh, protect people and whether the uh, Michael D should be talking about uh, councils building more houses personally I don't see why not I mean if w- it is a political office uh, the fact that it has been uh, so circumscribed over the years is not a requirement of the constitution uh, Your colleague I heard uh, Fintan O'Toole uh, recently saying simplicity sometimes is simple and councils should be building more houses is, is he and Michael D right? Well I mean they, I think Michael D and, and Fintan would probably be in agreement on a, on a lot of things Um whether they're right, clearly the councils uh, should be, um, uh, there should have been a long-standing yeah. engaged policy of, of social housing, perhaps on a different rule uh, to the ones that have uh, existed for many years in terms of having maybe smaller council estates more wedded in with uh, general communities or, or privately owned communities so that you don't end up with the danger of ghettoization, and perhaps also both a, a, a degree of higher standards on the part of local authority estates, uh, local authorities to look after estates, and on the part of tenants to look after the properties that they're given by the state because there should be a degree of acceptance on the part of people who are put who are given um, uh, houses by the state that they have received something that not everybody in the state has received and we saw in the stories before Christmas about the rent arrears and running at nearly a third in some local authority um, um, uh, council areas that is not acceptable in any shape or form at least the the um, the current government seem to be more in favour of a policy, I suppose, of tweaking tax codes and encouraging the, the market to come up with some sort of solution to the housing crisis. That's that's their policy, and uh, most people voted for them more than any other party um, in Fine Gael, at least. But you know, is is I going to ask the same question that I asked Mark? You know, are, are Michael D Higgins and Fintan O'Toole and those right when saying, look, sometimes simplicity is simple. Uh, the, the amount, the, the money that we can borrow is almost at negative interest rates. Councils should be borrowing that money. I think the Irish League of Credit Unions are talking about making half a billion euro available to them in funds if they want to build houses as well next year. That really, that's what we should be doing: large-scale social housing building again. Well, I mean, I totally agree with that, and I take, I totally agree with the point that money is cheap at the moment, and they should be availing of that. The, you know, what is happening is a crisis. I mean, this is an absolutely massive crisis, and it's not; it's deepening. As every month passes, we have 7,000 people homeless at the moment, which is absolutely extraordinary figure. So I would say this government, which doesn't really seem to have any ability to make any kind of strong decision on anything, should try and 
leave some legacy before it falls into an accidental election, which I'm pretty sure will happen, and just throw everything they have at this. I think they should say this is a crisis, so therefore all the usual rules are at the window about um, dealing with builders and developers and saying you've got you know there will be punish- there will be you will be punished if you don't put well, together they, uh, you know yeah, but if they you are, don't they are trying to do oh, that um, the difficulty to, is that because um, the local authorities actually do not have the capacity uh, in more recent years to build anything because they don't have the planning staff they don't yeah. have all of the internal experience because all of that was taken out and brought to the centre to a degree so a well, lot of a these jigsaw, kind of things have to be up, they need a joined yeah, up plan which, yeah, yeah. which has to be maybe if it yeah. has to be redone from scratch but with an urgency that is you know that is lacking at the moment mm. it's a piecemeal thing you know Simon Coveney it's like playing Jenga you know he pulls out one thing in the hope that it'll it, you know he can put it on top of something else but it's a mm. it's a creaky edifice. I would have thought that's actually true about Simon Coveney. No, I would have thought that an awful lot of what you're looking for has been incorporated into his thinking, and that he mm. has actually listened to and incorporated a wide range of possible solutions in the plans revealed mm. in when November. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think the fault lies with Simon Coveney's plan. It's just that the the. I suppose the other elements that he needs just aren't there and there seems to be no, you know, there seems to be no willingness of of the part of, say, the developers and, say, you know, those in construction to go along with this at the pace that is required. I think maybe more pressure needs to be to be brought on every interested party. Well, their argument is that it's still not worthwhile in a lot of cases to build. Yeah. Um, and, and another argument they make actually is that once it does become worthwhile to build uh, they're not going to start building to sell at lower prices or to rent out uh, long term you know apartments at lower prices that you know they're this supply and demand those old rules according to some in the construction industry won't apply that essentially if you build bring more apartments on stream they're being built so to be rented out at the 14, 16, 2 grand a month mark they're not being built so that they can reduce them and rent them out at a thousand euro a month True, but I mean, a government is more than uh, you know an economy. It's also you know it's also about providing for people on a huge scale. And sometimes there's too much deference, I think, shown towards the money making side of it. When really it's you know it should be actually about putting you know putting people in in homes. And if there's a financial hit to be taken on that, you'll get it back because once people have a roof over their head, then are in a position to maybe go and be, you know pay more tax, get jobs their children get better educated everything flows from having a roof over your head so if you sort that out I think you know the benefits they may not be able to monetize it immediately but the benefits will come So might you say that it's d- dysfunctional at the moment? Is that a word you'd no, use? No I wouldn't actually use the word dysfunctional no The word used by another great statesman we're going to talk about now I see Terry's already rolling her eyes You're on News Talk TV Terry you know <laughs> he can see it if he's watching I did a very gentle rolling of eyes Eamon Dunphy has an interview in the Sunday Business Post. A page, lengthy interview. A lengthy interview, page 67. He talks about even. a lot about, uh, about his time in, uh, on um, The Last Word, about uh, his footballing career, about podcasts that he's doing and podcasts he fans. But as well, he talks about the state of the nation uh, as well. He, he addresses. He says, um, 
well, he talks about uh, Europe as well. He says, look, it's a binary choice Europe's facing. It's either going to go completely autocratic and fascist or it's going to completely implode one or the other. There is no middle ground. Uh, but when he talks about Ireland, he says that Ireland doesn't matter anyway in the grand scheme of things in Europe, that the country is totally politically dysfunctional and the government is totally dysfunctional. There is no opposition. We don't have a free press. We don't have any of the boxes you need to tick for a functional democracy. We don't have them. Is he right? Um I would never uh, presume to describe him as right or wrong. Um, uh, I do think that it's interesting that he picks on Shane Ross in the middle of all of this. And uh, the quote is, um, he's talking about reform, but sure, that's not reform. Which I would have thought summed up this entire interview, that uh, pointing to all the ills of a society or of a wider continent doesn't amount to anything other than pointing to the ills of a society. And I would be interested to hear if there were solutions. Also, some of the stuff is simply headbanging, including the stuff that you read out, that there is only a binary choice. Nonsense. Terry, uh, Terry Prone is keeping us all entertained. Uh, I should introduce everyone again. Terry Prone, chairperson of the Communications Clinic, Mark Hennessy, news editor with the Irish Times, and Lise Hand, journalist and broadcaster. Terry, um, you know, I mentioned there during the break that I saw you over Christmas on a Celebrity Home of the Year. Your Martello Tower uh, was on it. You didn't win. I didn't win. Nora Casey won. Congratulations, Nora Casey. I'm not bitter and twisted. But it was the funniest thing. But you have a reason why you lost. Well, I have a very good reason because, you see, the system is they interview you and you show them around the house and then you have to buzz off while the judges come in because the judges are not supposed to know... um, who owns this Martello Tower, or in Nora Casey's case, her house. So I handed over a key and said, I'll retrieve that, blah, 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 buzzed off, and I came back after I knew that they were all finished. And I was going around the house saying, OK, what do they move? What do they change? Nothing much. And then I headed to the bathroom. And I pulled aside, because we have velvet curtains instead of doors, pulled aside this velvet curtain. And sitting on the tiled floor was a dead rat the size of a small cat. I mean, it was just monumental. And I stood there thinking, oh, bloody hell, was that dead rat there when the judges were here? Did the cats bring it in when the judges were here? Did the and judges, then, did Hugh or Declan bring in a dead rat? I'll tell you, it would... Nora Casey paid them to do it. <laughs> and then I was thinking, I can't even ring Shinnawill, the production company, and say, listen... Was the dead rat here when you were here or did it arrive afterwards? So I just disposed of the dead rat, but also of my hopes for winning the competition. Well, you should, have, tried to, you should have actually tried to pass it off as a modern art installation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting what she's done here in the bathroom. Yeah, sort of Tracy Emin style, you know. <laughs> All right, well, getting back to uh, some of the stories that were in the papers today, we kind of touched on a few of them. And, and Eamon Dunphy, in his, he's talking about this binary choice in Europe between kind of... Uh, all-out fascism or all-out collapse kind of brings us on to something else we wanted to do this morning and that's looking ahead to 2017 and we may as well start with uh, with Europe We're phasing into kind of a series of elections in, in the Netherlands and France and in Germany possibly in Italy as well um, over the next 12 months and there is I suppose uh, crisis potential crisis looming uh, but Mark is it a bit more nuanced than to say it's a binary choice between fascism and collapse? Oh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, having said that, uh, you know, depending on what the French do, clearly if uh, Marie Le Pen was to uh, 
uh, to win, then all bets are off. Now, you know, the odds in that at the moment would probably be um, that it's unlikely, but you know, it's, it's a very different ball game to uh, the run by her father uh, 16 years ago. So I think there there are going to be um, significant changes, and bear in mind there will be issues happening uh, during the course of the year that will impact on those elections. We saw the uh, atrocious attack last night in Ankara in the nightclub. Um, you know, unfortunately, we will see uh, similar uh, incidents like that happening in continental Europe and probably closer to home in Britain, uh, or at least there's a serious danger of that and a serious risk of that happening. And that's if it does happen, if those kind of things do happen, then that's going to impact on the public mood. And um, if you see what's happening in Germany with the way in which Merkel... Uh, is coming under pressure. She doesn't at the same time face any serious candidate and even Germans who dislike her and are are wary about her refugee policy don't see life after Merkel uh, as of yet. Now whether that changes over coming months. Uh, Clearly from our point of view the the principal issue is Brexit. Um, There's an interesting editorial in the Sunday Times today where they're talking about this need for uh, not a Brexit ambassador as such but a, a Brexit envoy who'd be somebody like Catherine Day or Peter Sutherland or um, somebody with street cred in other European Union capitals uh, who would be able to um, to to build relations in a, a, a maybe in a, in a different way to what's done by foreign affairs. Now obviously foreign affairs and government buildings will, will say that that is already happening at a level with uh, Charlie Flanagan and with the Taoiseach. Um, but in the Taoiseach's case uh, our position on Brexit and his future are inextricably uh, linked together because whatever else he has, he has relationships with people that have been built up over the last five years at a European Council level that would be difficult to replace tomorrow. They obviously would be replaced in time because everybody can be replaced in time, but there is at least a short-term, medium-term value in in terms of having uh, the same face on the board. And uh, whether he he's clearly, I suspect, uh, playing that card uh, within uh, Fine Gael or at least making it known uh, occasionally that there is a certain value in that. So that's going to be um, uh, significant. The biggest danger we have at the moment when it comes to Brexit is that there's no deal between uh, the UK and uh, and the rest. And we've, you know, 15 months effectively to actually agree some deal of some kind from next March, assuming that Theresa May uh, does trigger uh, Article 50 and the beginning of their efforts to get out of the union. Uh, Whatever they do has to have a few months free at the end of the two year period to allow for ratification and all the other paperwork issues. But it's far more likely as of now, if you were betting, that there would be no deal and that they would simply walk back into uh, WTO rules and that would create probably the biggest political and economic crisis that we've seen in decades. Is there not an argument though that say about 48 point whatever percent of people in the UK voted to remain and a good rump of those who voted to leave didn't vote for that type doesn't of matter. Brexit? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, a, a referendum is a referendum is a referendum. Uh, whether we like the result uh, or not um, it makes no difference. There's no whatever else the British are I think if if somebody came back to them tomorrow and said, or the English uh, actually is probably distinct, uh, and said, we want to run this again, uh, this isn't these two. 
uh, you'd never get that kind of an environment uh, in the UK where uh, you would have a political climate. Largely, to, a few to an Fianna Fáil ex-TDs now could make some money in consultancy going over oh, to I'm tell sure. them how to I'm rerun I'm sure a referendum could, but to, get the, <laughs> to get the right answer. I mean, you have a rabid um, um, Eurosceptic press, which would become even more rabid in a situation um and it's interesting, you know, Conor Brady is making the point in his column today talking about this whole uh, chatter about post-truth and everything else, that what you saw in the British press in the run-up to the Brexit referendum was post-truth in newsprint, where they told bare-faced lies again and again and again. Uh, it wasn't just happening on social media. Um, so uh, I don't see any prospect uh, where, where that's going to happen. The difficulty that Theresa May has is that she at some point has to come to a, cro- a fork in the road where she gives an indication to the British people as to what Brexit will actually look like in real practical terms. She and doesn't that, know, though. No, but at some point she has to know. Right, whether that's March or, or whenever but at some point she has to decide is it inside the single market or outside is it inside the customs union or outside all very heavy talk for New Year's morning but never mind um, uh, and whatever decision she makes on that there are 60 to 70 Tory MPs on either side of the argument who are gone from her at that point because she can't keep both sides happy and at that point you're into um, a, a, a significant political crisis all over again uh, Terry domestically is it is it fair to criticise the government for how they're preparing for Brexit when like when Theresa May doesn't even know what Brexit looks like yet when no one knows what it looks like yet how much can we realistically do well first of all going back to Mark's point about a referendum is a referendum is a referendum I think that Ireland has established a useful precedent in this regard there should be in any referendum I would suggest a cooling off period where when uh, the public discovers that they were lied to and that their decision was based on untruths that there is a possibility of revisiting a decision yeah. rather than taking it as sorry Mark yeah. No but the point I'm making is that that's not the nature of the debate that's taking place in Britain Precisely oh, oh, oh. I'm just when saying the, that, the, that that is one of the things that we should look at because before I answer your actual question um, one of the problems that we have with Europe is that Europe has got one hell of a kick in the teeth from uh, England, from Britain. Um, But it has done no examination of conscience. Mm -hmm. It hasn't said, why did this happen and how can we improve so that it doesn't happen anywhere else? That bothers me very much. It is as if it has become such a self-perpetuating monolith that it never asks questions of itself and that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Is there not a danger? Like people don't like to admit that they've been had. They don't want to when it, when when things don't turn out the way they expected it. Say Boris Johnson saying, "Oh, don't worry about it. We'll still have a seat even on the Commission, and we'll be outside the EU." And none of that happens. They don't want to look around and say, "Well, actually, you know what? The fault lies with me because I bought into all that, and I thought there would be three hundred fifty million a week or whatever a day or whatever it was for the NHS." That uh, you know, the next stage in this process, when you look at human history, is finding someone else to blame the others to blame and then you have that anti-immigrant thing that that trait in, in England that, that did come to the fore bubbled up to the surface that that just gets stronger and stronger all of the in, in the aftermath of a mistaken decision which people don't quite understand all of the most lamentable aspects of humanity come to the fore always whether it's racism bigotry all of those sort of things what what bothers me about Theresa May is that she has the calm 
and the presence of a great leader. But thus far, she has given no evidence of actual leadership, of stating this is precisely what we need to get to do to achieve. And that's disturbing. Please, please strike a more hopeful note on Brexit mm. for us on um, New Year's Day. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss there, I have to say. I mean, given it's a new year, I think if the Chinese had threw an extra animal into their calendar, I think it could be looking at the year of the lemming because <laughs> there's several things that could see everything hurtle over the cliff at a, in a heedless fashion between Brexit and the incoming Trump administration. Um, no, I, Brexit is, it's a dog's Brexit, basically, uh, to misquote, <laughs> to use a misquotation. Uh, nobody knows uh, what is going to happen once um, Article 50 is triggered and the government here can put all the plans they like in place but it's largely out of their hands and you know wow. how the British economy is going to react how Europe are going to react what the implications are of of the whatever is eventually triggered they really are passengers in this particular roller coaster and they it is they they need to be ready to be able to react but they really can put very few plans in place beforehand is the is the hope? I suppose the real hope maybe of something a little softer, Mark. That essentially that the uh, Court of Appeals in the UK would um, uh, the Supreme Court would come back and say, look, the royal prerogative doesn't apply here. Parliament has to vote on this, and that maybe allows a bit of softening. Well, I mean that is possible, but you know that that would be uh, it's the most likely uh, outcome from the Supreme Court that they would say that it's quite clear that there should be a parliamentary vote. Uh, her mistake was that she didn't move on that very quickly because in the immediate weeks after the referendum, uh, there isn't an MP uh, in Britain that would have been in a position to have done anything about it, whatever their opinions on Brexit. Um, and if she does it now, she will win it. There's no doubt about that. Even if, if 60 or 70 Tory MPs go AWOL, uh, if you're a Labour MP uh, north of the wash, you are not going to be the man who voted against uh, 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 triggering Article 50. No way in the world. Uh, their biggest uh, risk now is seeing what will happen with UKIP. Uh, becoming a significant threat. Now, you know, you can never doubt the capacity of that party to shoot itself in the foot. Um, so it's quite possible that they'll, they'll make a hames of it. Uh, but there is a threat to Labour seats in the north of England that hasn't existed probably for 50 years. And they're in a, a pretty shambolic way. So um, if it's the Supreme Court finds against uh, she should move, she should move immediately. And I presume she will, because I can't see any reason um, why uh, she won't. And Jeremy Corbyn is will demand certain things in terms of workers' rights and a whole variety of other things. Um, he's not in position, I would have thought, to demand at the top end of, of uh, his uh, his list of issues uh, in terms of the single market and the customs union, because I doubt if he could keep even his own people, uh, a sufficient number of them, on side in a vote like that. So what you will have is a shambles uh, in the House of Commons. Um, the difficulty that they have is... So is there, is there real opposition in the Commons at the moment within the Tories' party? Yeah, but it always has been uh, when it comes to Europe. Um, their biggest problem is administrative. The number of officials who have just said, I'm not doing this and have left. Uh, the, the difficulties that they're having filling um, David Davis's department, uh, filling jobs in, in, in that particular department. The number of people who've left um, uh, Boris Johnson and the Foreign Office. Uh, and that is replicated all over the system. People who fundamentally disagree with the decision that was taken by uh, the voters and who 
obviously if they stay as civil servants have no choice but to implement that decision who are just saying I don't want to spend the next five years of my life or ten years of my life uh, dealing with this crap uh, and are walking out the door and uh, if you talk to people who are in touch with um, uh, Downing Street on a regular basis now um, as one person said to me uh, some time back he said it's not until you're inside that that you realise that the lunatics genuinely have taken over the asylum on this particular issue they don't know what it is that they want and they don't know how it is that they can get what it is that they don't know that they want (laughs) unknown unknowns Uh, Lise enough doom and gloom from this side of the Atlantic in 19 days time uh, Donald Trump is going to usher in a new era of hope reconciliation uh, for for, for the United States and the world discuss right I've obviously just walked through into a parallel universe there Um, it's going to be extraordinary it is going to be goo-boo uh, American style because we are literally do not know what's going to happen from day to day. Every morning I wake up, check the Twitter feed just to see what his little stubby fingers were, were you know, were, were worrying about overnight. Uh, his on the old his Twitter New feed. Year's message was very funny where he, he, he basically had a go at his enemies. It yeah. was like that Father Ted scene, you know, where he wins the Golden Cleric and, yeah, and, and now the to the liars. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it was like. And you have, it makes me laugh when you hear the desperation of some political commentators saying he could be refreshing and he could, you know, bring a whole new view because he's an outsider. No, no, no. This man is absolutely and utterly unfit to be president of the United States. Uh, he has done nothing to try and bring together the fractured factions since his election. And I mean, the divisions were extraordinary. He has not settled anybody's nerves except perhaps Wall Street and the high-flying economists who are looking at potential massive tax breaks for the wealthy and his massive swamp-drained cabinet full of billionaires. And uh, he's already throwing shapes about meeting with the um, president of Taiwan. She's making a stop off in the States in a couple of weeks' time. We've already seen what happened the first time when he had a phone call with her. China got annoyed. This is all the stuff he's doing before he even gets in the door and gets his feet under under the resolute desk. I mean... You know, I'd love to sit here and do the Pollyanna and plait my hair and say everything's going to be hunky-dory. But it ain't. I mean, it, as a journalist, it's going to be, it's going to be f- very interesting. But, you know, the, speaking of the Chinese, you know, they say, may we live in interesting times. I mean, it's a curse, you know. Uh, Terry, uh, the office becomes the man. Is there not an argument in that, that once he uh, steps through the doors of the Oval Office, reason takes over. There is a case for that if you look at uh, Lyndon Johnson because Lyndon Johnson was regarded as a thug from the South um, who just knew dealing and nothing else. He was crude. He was all the things that liberal America despised. He actually was a very good president and a very visionary president. Do I think that he can be used as a precedent to predict that Donald Trump will do likewise? No. Um, On the other hand, the very thing that Donald Trump lacks, which Johnson had, could be useful. Donald Trump has no principles and no attention span. 
This allows for great flexibility in terms in times of stress, and we must be hopeful that it applies in times of stress. Yeah, and I guess if maybe he had a, a cabinet of people, of responsible and reasonable people around him then to, to, to take the reins, well, this that, goes that, that back, might be something to hope for. This but goes he back seems to be Mark's kind of po- swapping one elite with another elite. No, but the, the point that Mark made about the almost the permanent government in Britain leaving in protest at the Brexit thing, um, it's one of the problems that America has is that it doesn't have enough permanent mm. government. It doesn't have the administrative infrastructure mm. that Ireland has and that Britain has. And so you can change a vast swathe of it with remarkable effect. I think that this is a good time for prayer uh, magic <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, and, and mince pies, maybe, for the season that's in it. <laughs> uh, Mark, uh, is that part of the problem that I, they weren't a colony long enough? They don't have that legacy of, uh, of, a, of a colonial administration and bureaucracy to kind of slow things down and really temper whatever the president might want to do? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's a certain amount of this that we'll just have to suck it and see it. I think anybody knows. I thought one thing that people should look at if they've got uh, a little while is to watch on YouTube his Michigan speech recently on part of his victory tour. And it's amazing where he gets up and he tells people basically that he took him for a ride. Um, you know, he said, people told me that I should do this draining the swamp line. He said, I hated it. Awful. Then I tried it and it worked. Then I tried it some more and it worked even better. And I thought, God, this is brilliant. And he's telling this to the people to whom that line worked. And this went on and on and on. It was remarkably honest where he deconstructed his campaign and basically told the, the people in front of him, you're a bunch of suckers. Well, it's interesting. And, Lyndon, and they cheered yeah. him, which was even more extraordinary. Lyndon Johnson, I mean, I think it was him that famously said that uh, in relation to having a sort of relationship with with the with the electorate uh, if you lose Walter Cronkite you lose middle america mm-hmm. you know so he had an understanding that he had to keep this relationship going but if mark is saying you have somebody who's going in who's saying I took you for fools then he goes all the people who voted for him to build a wall and deport 11 million uh, illegal immigrants that doesn't happen so he loses his base the white supremacists get annoyed at the other and in the meanwhile the rest of the world is just completely freaked out because he's he's upending everything that you know has stood in place in terms of international treaties and so on you know it just leads to massive instability and the flexibility which I totally agree with with Terry can be advantageous the trouble is you have somebody who seems to to basically forge his policies and, and opinions with regards to the last person he talked to so, I mean, you know, that might maybe in bad times manoeuvrability is good, but making foreign policy on the hoof, depending on the last person muttering on, on your ear, whether it's Stephen Bannon or whether it is, I don't know, um, Kanye West, uh, you know, doesn't really sound like the best sort of policy for the leader of the free world, you know, to, you know, to keep the show on the road. Uh, Mark, is part of his problem, say, domestically going to be that he's just left himself too many hostages to fortune? And the, the fact is he's never going to be able to bring back jobs to the Rust Belt because, look, it had nothing to do with globalisation. It was just mechanisation. They're not mm. going to get rid of robots. Yeah, but, but what people like him do in situations like that is they create new enemies. 
And they so what bl- we talked about with Brexit, you just, yeah. this is Muslims' fault. This is yeah, you blame. You find somebody fault. else, someone uh, else's uh, fault. to blame. I mean, we saw with the the Carrier story in Indiana, where he made a claim that he'd brought back eleven hundred jobs and seven million a year in local taxes uh, to pay for it. Um, you know, the, the, the local union said the deal was a bucket of crap, um, and that's going to be uh, replicated time and time again. And then he appoints a bunch of billionaires uh, to his cabinet. Um, so that we can have rich men making more decisions to benefit rich men. I mean, does anybody seriously believe that the tax cuts that he's talking about are going to benefit blue-collar America? They might get some Trick, scraps. Trickle-down economics? They'll get scraps from the table, but they won't get anything more than that. Terry, why does this matter to us, or why should it matter to us? What goes on there? Well, first of all, we are, is it the 51st state of America and we are a blue state, so it matters very much to us. Um, Secondly, it matters because we have a sort of a moral attitude that we may not do it perfectly here, but we know how everywhere else should do it. And we really don't like the idea of Donald Trump being there. I have a personal conviction that that he's not going to survive that he's not going to survive as a human, I mean, that he will simply not live. I have no basis for this, whatever. But if he does survive, God bless him, um, and uh, function as a president, I think we're going to have some very terrifying times, but also some refreshing uh, unorthodox responses to things, like his response to Putin not going for the predictable we will now remove 35 uh, diplomats or spies and send them back to America. That was unexpected of, of Putin. Ah, but he's and just, the response was... He's just replacing one bogeyman with another there though. It's, re- it's Orwellian stuff. Like as in China's now the bad guy, Russia's the good guy. You know, mm. it's kind of, you know, I can't mm. remember the countries. Is it Oceania and Air Fo- Airstrip 1 or whoever's mm. fighting each other mm. in Yeah, well, I think Putin's uh, measured response probably rattled more people than suited them yes. because the immediate assumption is then, actually, look, Obama's only in there for another couple of weeks or we'll hang on and then my pal's in there and it'll all be, it'll all be grand. So the understanding of that was that, you know, Vladimir Putin just couldn't be bothered ratcheting up something, you know, for three weeks when he's going to have his buddy mm. in the It in was the kind of tactical office. too. He made, he did make Obama look a little, you know, they had they actually tweeted that day the Russian Foreign Ministry account a, a picture of a lame duck. <laughs> they actually mm. tweeted it. Yeah. And mm. that, that's kind of what he was doing, wasn't it? Look, you don't matter, so I'm not even going to react. Exactly. But I think that it's uh, exacerbated by the, f- by the fact that um, that Donald Trump just lauds uh, Putin at every hand's turn yeah, and has I mean, it's, done. It, it's interesting. We perhaps don't have a, a sufficient sense of it here, but if you talk to people in the Baltic states, for instance, and in, in Poland, but particularly the Baltics, who have long historical memories of uh, knowing uh, the, the Russian bear, and you talk and listen to them about how terrified they are uh, about the future and the, the, the next coming years, because they don't believe that, that um, Trump will behave in any sort of predictable way, and that whatever he do will end up being to the benefit of Russia to some degree. Someone has texted in here. Sorry, Terry. Uh, Paulrick is his name. He says, Trump is a hero. More lefty liberal PC nonsense from your tree huggers and your panel. Roll on, Marine Le Pen. Uh, you know, here... We don't. We haven't really seen. I suppose that that rise of the right, have we? Like the domestically, I suppose what we talk about is that the fragmentation of the left nearly has has have dominated really what the kind of the political discourse in terms of the direction that party politics might go. Why haven't we seen it, and will we see it? 
What we're actually seeing is the reduction of political discourse to reality television where it is all about personalities and the latest tweet that somebody sent so that we're looking at, for example, Jerry Adams in terms of his tweets about having power cuts and things like that. And I believe that mainstream media at the moment faces a huge problem because without going down that route, it's quite difficult to make politics as seriously interesting as it used to be. And mainstream media, clearly as evidenced by the New York Times during the presidential election, doesn't want to go down that route, wants to stay with truth, wants to stay with fact-checking. The problem is it didn't work. Mark, you're part of that mainstream media, I guess we mm. all are. Mm. Uh, how, how do you combat that? How do you engage with people who don't care or don't seem to care about facts? <coughs> well, I'm not entirely sure that you can. Um, you have to at some point believe that there are enough sentient thinking people out there who believe that a democracy can only work on the basis of a flow of accurate information from wherever that comes. And I don't mean, I think social media has, uh, at its best, uh, is is complementary to good journalism. It's not a replacement for it, but it is complementary. The problem is that uh, uh, good social media, informed social media, is a distinct uh, minority of what is actually produced. And as I said, you know, somewhere else recently, you know, there was a time when you could listen to this nonsense at a bar counter and if you didn't like it, you could walk to the other end of the bar and, and ignore it. Now it's coming into your living room. And it is poisoning debate. Uh, it is simplifying uh, people's opinions. Uh, as you saw from that last text where people, you know, fundamentally misunderstand what's being said and put it into whatever narrative uh, that they want, um, then people will do that. And there isn't a whole lot that that anyone can do about it. And the, the principal difficulty with social media is that it is not representative of middle opinion, because middle opinion has got better things to do with its life than to spend New Year's morning sending out tweets. Yeah. Uh, I'm conscious we're kind of running out of time. I should just reintroduce everyone. Terry Prone, chairperson of the Communications Clinic, Mark Hennessy, news editor with the Irish Times, and Lise Han, journalist and broadcaster. Lise, uh, turn our attention kind of to these shores uh, before we finish up. Uh, will this government last the year if you're putting money on it right now? Well, I read a very interesting piece this morning by John Lee in the in the uh, Mail on Sunday, where he's putting the case together that this government will will actually hang together um, simply because they don't Fine Gael don't have the money to go into an election. Um, they don't have the sort of the coffers, and they feel that the public aren't really looking for an election and. The Fianna Fáil feel the same that there's no public mood for an election, so therefore there's no reason for them to pull the plug. But. I think, I've all believed all along that there will be an accidental election. I think something will happen that, again, the year of the unknown unknowns, something that we, it, it could be something flagged like the upcoming vote in March on the water charges, but it could be something unexpected because we're dealing with a coalition that is inherently, is unstable. It's it's not a or an arrangement, I should say, that is inherently unstable. And it just takes one piece of self-interest or one small row that suddenly escalates in beyond anybody's expectations to be plunged into an election. And you think that'll come from Independent Alliance? It could come from Independent Alliance. It could come from Fianna Fáil if they get a few bad polls and they suddenly their figures start to tank and they realise that being tied into this confidence and supply arrangement is doing nothing for them. Um, I 
I don't know. I, I think self-interest might keep the show on the road if they feel there's no public at- ap- appetite for an election next year. But, you know, things happen and I think an accident election could be one of those things. Terry, what you would asked it? us where we'd put our money, what we'd bet on. Um, I gave up gambling um, when I was eight. Um, because <laughs> After a long and illustrious <laughs> career. It was the communion money, obviously. <laughs> Up to then, I'd done really well because my mother used to dream the winner of the Grand National. And when I was eight, she started to take sleeping pills. And after that, we had no <laughs> luck. Um, I think the honest answer from any of us around this table, not preempting the news editor of the Irish Times, is that nobody has a clue. No. Um, mm. There are people who have a particular merit, objective merit, in what they're doing at the moment. Ender Kenny is one because he has a decade and a half of understanding Europe and relationships to match. He also has a capacity to make the incompatible reasonably civil to each other over a short period of time in a cabinet. Um, after that, you have Michal Martin, who's doing a great job with Fianna Fáil, and nobody knows what will happen to any of them. Mark, last word to you. I wouldn't uh, put money on it simply because, I, I, like everybody else, I haven't a clue uh, what's <laughs> going to happen. I would have, if, if you ask me for an opinion, I think it probably will survive on the basis that the independents are there long enough to have developed a taste for being inside of government buildings rather than outside of it. Uh, they're presumably, they're getting some benefit in terms of constituency help and all of the rest of it in terms of uh, establishing themselves. So the longer this goes on, the greater the, uh, the merit for them uh, in continuing it. Um, a solution on the water charges is going to be absolutely vital in some shape or form. And I suspect that there's a possibility that the the troublesome uh, group will not be people who didn't pay water charges, but uh, those who did, who are going to say, hang on a second, and I'm one of them. I mean, I paid and I was quite happy to pay, but if anybody thinks I'm going to sit here and I'll allow myself to be walked over, then they've got another thing coming. And I think there's a million and a half people who probably agree with me. All right, look, unfortunately, we're, we're running out of <laughs> the time. The revolution starts here with Brother Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Mark Hennessy, a news editor with the Irish Times, Terry Prone, chairperson of the Communications Clinic, and Lee's Hand, journalist and broadcaster. Thank you all very much for coming in to us today.